It's time to accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 721. That's episode 721 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. Now, every week at this point, I say that I'm excited to have my guests on the show and that I have another excellent episode lined up for you today. Well, let me tell you, that goes double for today. I'm very excited to welcome to the show my guests, Ben Saltzman and Kyle Williams. Ben and Kyle are the principals at Dog Patch Advisors based in San Francisco. And it's such a fascinating conversation about outbound prospecting that it's one of those things we could have kept talking for hours. And episode did not go on that long. Uh, but be warned, it, this episode runs a little bit longer than the normal 30 minutes, and just because we had so much to get into. So today we're going to primarily be talking about outbound, actually outbound operations to be precise, and sort of a, a new term coined by, by Ben and Kyle. Now, we know SDRs and outbound teams in general are usually not experts in operations or persuasion, copywriting, <laughs> how to sequence the emails, time management, uh, conversion, all those things. So outbound operation is a system that, that they've developed for an organization to use to produce dynamic, relevant content that fits their particular outbound situation and that tunes itself through self-learning you know, with repetition. Um, and so it's with our company, Dogpatch, Ben and Kyle have uh, developed this outbound ops to consolidate data from a variety of sources to enable true insights into the buyer that can drive demonstrably improved outbound sales approaches. So we're going to get into that. We're going to get into much, much more. So definitely stick around for this entire conversation. Now, before I get to Ben and Kyle, I want to take a quick second to talk about this, my sales growth planner. Now, this is the ultimate planner and tracker for high-performance sales individuals and sales leaders. Now, the sales growth planner, we built specifically to help you identify your big, bold sales goals and then give you a step-by-step framework to enable the learning and the personal growth that you need in order to achieve those goals. So it's created by me, and it's designed to enable you to act on your highest priorities, ensure that you're holding yourself accountable for achieving your goals. It's all based on a planning format that I've been successfully using for over four decades as a top producer and high-growth sales leader. And the thought and effort that you put into creating your plan, your sales plan, your learning plan, will be repaid with interest as you go through your entire 12-month plan period. So become the best version of you. Visit thesaleshouse.com forward slash planner to get your sales growth planner today. That is thesaleshouse.com forward slash planner. Okay, let's jump into it. Excited to get going. Ben and Kyle, welcome to the show. Andy, Andy thanks for having us. So, welcoming Ben Saltzman and Kyle Williams from Dog Patch Advisors to the show. Um, so, tell us a little bit about Dog Patch and what you guys do. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Uh, this is Ben. So, Dog Patch is an advisory and research firm. We're focused on developing sales playbooks, sales process, a lot of things around outbound, and we sort of come from deep operating experience in sales and think there's a lot of ways to sort of drag the sales profession to the modern, modern world and better take advantage of a lot of this sort of explosion of data that's happening. Mm-hmm. So we spend our time working with operators, with technology companies, trying to help companies scale faster. Okay. And Kyle, what was the impetus to start the company? Yeah, I think it, it, to Ben's point about us being operators was Ben and I have worked together for over a decade now at different organizations, we worked together at Google, worked together at a startup. And then 
after the startup, we realized there, there were a lot of things we were doing, particularly in outbound that we thought were table stakes. And so we started interviewing, you know, companies mm-hmm. outside of outside of our normal sphere. And we learned actually it's it's a lot of the stuff that we were iterating on back at Google that we thought was outdated that a lot of companies are doing. Um, and so that's I think some of the core impetus is we think we can help and we think we take a different perspective of being operators instead of the traditional show up, ask you a bunch of questions, and then give you a binder of here's everything you told us rephrased. So Give us an example of things that maybe you've been doing at Google previously that, yeah, there are now companies today that are just sort of learning about or beginning to adopt. Yeah, yeah I think one of the core things was, yeah, one of the core things I think was realizing that this explosion of raw data was fundamentally breaking what a lot of people think of as the predictable revenue model, right? So we, we often say the predictable, predictable revenue model it's not that it's wrong. It's that it was right, and the world has simply changed around it. Right? But it's so, but it's still the Bible for much of the valley. <laughs> I mean, it's it's like table stakes. If you want to get an investment, you know, that's the thing the investors do. They hand you the book and say, "Go do this." I think that's right, and we're trying to change that as as quickly as we can. I mean, I think if you're operating in a world where you're taking people two years out of school, handing them a target list, and expecting them to become both experts in the domain and be really close to prospects, I think your expectations are off. And our sort of <laughs> yeah. core thesis, right? Like if our core thesis is that this explosion of raw data and all these attributes that you can know about companies, about people, about technographics and real-time signals and beyond makes it so that the traditional SDR model fundamentally breaks when it's trying to sort of process and normalize all of this raw data. So at Google, we realized that there was raw data that we can go get our hands on things like what email system is someone using? What spam filter are they using? And this was for, for mm-hmm. Google, Google Cloud and sort of selling Google's technology to companies. And we started to really figure out how to scale relevant communication, which is to say, you know, sort of the outbound function go beyond what we sort of think of as a tribal relevance. So, hey, I saw you went to college, go mm. mascot. So the, the sort of state of the art, unfortunately, in the so- industry. Social selling, yes. Correct. <laughs> uh, and we, can come, we should come back to that. And, and I think, you know, we sort of realized that if you take two steps back and think about building a data pipeline to actually power a new type of playbook, you can reach both much higher throughput and higher relevance without sacrificing, you know, quality. And so we, we wrote a, there's an ebook chapter that we did with Clearbit on sort of inventing this function. It was sort of bringing together that clearinghouse for raw data with training and things that we were receiving on how to, how to get people to respond one-to-one, but figuring out how to scale that. So that was a core insight for us. So when you say the predictable revenue model is broken, if I take what you're saying is, is that... It's assuming that the SDRs can assume the responsibility for all these functions you talked about uh, in terms of making sure they have good data to work with. And well, I mean, we're going to go through some of that when we talk about your outbound ops. But it's just we're asking too much of the SDR, I guess, basically, or unrealistic expectations for what an SDR can do. That's right. We're, we're basically asking them to become experts in operations and persuasion and copywriting and how to sequence things properly and then to manage, do all the time management to run through your different plays as well as converting with live conversations or the replies that come through. And those are things I wouldn't expect someone who's five years out of college to have mastered yeah. uh, all at once. Right. right. 
um, those become different specialized functions or centralized in different ways. Okay. And so, oh, by the way, and oh, by the way, use it as a farm system to get yourself ready for the next role, right? <laughs> Which, like most people get promoted to that AE job without ever having sold yes. or having been prepared to sell in any real way. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's why I was, I was coming, I was about to make is that let alone all these other areas you talked about, the fundamental problems still with most SDRs is, yeah, they don't know how to sell. And it's, it's not their fault. It's just that's a function of the job. That job's, again, people hate it when I say this, but it's not really a sales job. We love it when so, you say that. I think that's, <laughs> that's right, right? It's a feedback loop for generating, making reply counts go up. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right? So, and that's why I'm happy to have marketing have responsibility for that. That's why in my books, I always start, my books start with the presumption that you have a lead in hand and what do you do once you have a lead? Because, yeah, that's, and it's, it's, dirty thankless work for the most part and i mean i wish wish i had been more this way than the way i don't know i think i would have preferred to do it this way than going out and driving to the east bay somewhere and parking in a business park and making 40 50 cold calls a day i'm not sure um, yeah. <laughs> which one which would be preferred but nonetheless it's a learning experience at least i was learning how to sell so yeah um all right so talk about Outbound ops. This is one of the things that you guys you guys focus on. You've been alluding to it here. Companies you work with. So tell us what that is. Yeah. So outbound ops for us is both you know a new model for outbound, but also a function within organization that is responsible for centrally planning and managing the sort of hypothesis or playbook backlog, as well as setting up and managing a clearinghouse for processing, sourcing, normalizing raw data for the use. In outbound, so in there's outbound. lots of ops okay. in outbound. Correct. So there's lots of ops people running around. You know, many big companies well, who are focused. On, it, I was just going to say, it's just so you know, people listening to this, yeah, you know, sort of get a sense is that because there's still a big cadre of of uh, sales experts, I'll say, who yeah you know, think that hey, this an account exec could still prospect, which I think in some cases is great, but that it's you know. You're going to use LinkedIn. That's how you can make your connections and awareness of all of this use of data just basically doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. And then, look, we have, we have strong opinions on ways to enable AEs to sell also, but often it's going to be standing on the shoulders of centralized work mm-hmm. to sort of extract all the complexity of sifting through data. What does this data mean? And getting right. to the second effects of like this piece of raw data in and of itself is not useful. Sometimes people use that for sort of an observation of like, I noticed you have X tech installed and I want to sell you my product. That's great. There are startups that existed to do that, right? <laughs> right. That's exactly right. And what we can talk about, you know, more and more is the way that you sort of piece together more than one piece of data to create something net new. So instead of observations, mm-hmm. you're getting through insights. So, you know, I noticed like that you exi- recently started this function and open an office in this area and that you have this tech installed, the three of those things present together tends to create this issue. And here's how we solve that issue. Again, most SDRs aren't set up to get to that insight for a single account, let alone doing it across 10,000, 100,000 accounts. Okay. Kyle, go ahead. Yeah, I would say part of what, and going back to the AE concept and tying it in here is what what is good about AEs being involved in how prospecting happens is that they have the feedback loops of how this feed on the ground live conversation, how you adapt in the moment and how you get to mm-hmm. the most compelling story that's in their heads, but it's very much 
not documented and they couldn't necessarily explain it, but a, a Google story that we have for that is, you know, Ben and I were selling, you know, to CIOs and we're selling early cloud. Mm-hmm. And so you talk to different IT teams and, and IT leaders. And what you're doing is you're talking about their infrastructure and then you're talking about why they should move to what Google's doing. And you see patterns that arise, right? Like someone who has Cisco Ironport for a spam provider, and that was a piece of technology we sold was, was Google spam protection. Um, that's a very complex enterprise sale, very expensive, and also very good. Mm-hmm. That tells you something about the culture of that IT team versus someone who's using some open source you know, spam list and updating it once a month. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about cost of ownership. And back then, there were no providers that gave you these tools, right? So uh, what we did is we wrote a script that would ping email servers, and the email servers will reply and just say, I'm here, right? There is an email server sitting here. But the way that it replies, it has a different flavor based on if it's coming from a Cisco Ironport box or it's coming from um, some open source tools. Mm -hmm. So tying that into running against 10,000 domains, suddenly we have a proxy for culture of IT. Right. And so we're not saying like, hey, Andy, I saw your company uses Ironport and therefore we think Google's great for you. We just go in with messaging that talks about the fact that Google has 500 plus security engineers, which you probably don't have in your company, the robustness, what goes in and how frequently things are updated, et cetera, and how downtime, blah, blah, blah. If you have the open source, we're going to talk about total cost of ownership and ease of maintenance, right? And changing the language, which seems obvious today because you can go pick those things up. Mm -hmm. But especially back then, and then moving and evolving this idea forward is the expertise that it takes to know those patterns that happen on a call is very different than the expertise that says, we're going to go mine this across a bunch of companies and create these inferences, and then we'll be able to tie it together into how we say something different. Today, primarily outbound is its own feedback loop of, are we getting replies? We're not actually listening to what's happening right. on the calls and pulling it forward. Right. So so how does a, a company then, other than having you guys come in and do this for them, is, you know, how, first of all, they have to conceptualize this idea of this outbound ops, as you talk about. This is a, a distinct function that doesn't exist within the organizations today. How, how do they come to this awareness that, oh shit, we need this? Yeah, it's a great question, Andy. I think a lot of times it's happening already. It's just happening on an account by account basis. So if you go sit down with the best AE or the CEO or someone in product and you ask them, how do you prepare for a first call, right? Let's say you're going and selling to you know, a big tech company of a meeting next week. What is the decision tree that goes off in your head of the things to look for and you know, sort of decide what is the logic for how I'm going to assume that this call is going to go? Here are the questions I'll ask. Here are the pieces of information I'm looking for. Here's the outcome, et cetera. Now, this is, you, this is an AE or SDR we're talking about? Well, this would you know, ideally be like your best AE, someone in product, your CEO, someone okay. who's really an expert on, okay. on the All company. Right. All right. And if you sort of find out what they do on an account-by-account account basis, well, we've created some frameworks to sort of back that out into, okay, here is the logic that the person goes through in their head. They may not have it written down. They may not actually be able to repeat it account to account, but they can do it right. once. Right. How do we back that out and then go think about sourcing that data on a broader scale. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the examples are different within each company, but I think often what we're doing is we're mining for those insights from the best customer success reps, the best sales reps, looking through email copy and saying, okay, here's a single example of someone doing high calorie work to produce a highly relevant insight for a company. How do we take two steps back and set up the infrastructure to go and collect a lot of that data? And oh, by the way, that data might not be available from a third-party vendor, right? Like everyone can get data on sure. you know, company name, you know, revenue, right. employee account, etc. 
about what's most likely to produce high quality insights and sort of relevance at scale is going to be data that you can't buy from a third party provider. It's likely going to be data that you'll either use custom code to go out and scrape, maybe even outsources to go find, you know, by hand, but mm-hmm. high enough worth the, the value that it's worth paying all of these outsourcers. So we're trying to sort of back out what are the attributes that they aren't even thinking about that can help drive content. And, you know, Kyle talked about this sort of, you know, going and finding these different attributes like we did at Google. Um, it's important to note that when most companies think about data providers, they're doing it for like a TAM exercise, right? They have right. a board meeting and they're like, oh, we have Hoover's. You know, Hoover says there's 27,000 companies in the space who will or buy there's, our... Yeah, there's 70,000 names in Discover Org that uh, fit our profile, right? right? Correct. And so you sort of get to this place where you're trying to fit a square peg round hole and trying to use data that was meant for one thing for another. So for a long time, people have been using the data for targeting of who do we want based on they have a lot of revenue, they have a lot of employees. Great. Why do they want us? And how does this drive the content? Those are actually harder questions. Mm-hmm. right? So using data for targeting is one thing. Using data to drive specific pieces of content, and we can kind of get into examples of this if you'd like, that's actually much more difficult. And often it's a different set of data, a different set of providers, a different motion to go and capture and use that. So who's responsible for this then? I mean, this is, this is sort of an interesting thing. I mean, it's, it's not a sales ops necessarily. It's not sales enablement. I mean, are companies you're working with actually creating a new position that is outbound ops? That's right. And so in terms of, so one, yes, it's a new, it is in our mind, a new role. We do have clients who are, they're building a role called outbound ops. And then hmm. the classic question is, which team does it sit in? Is it marketing? <laughs> is it sales? And it kind of is in between the two, right? Because sure. you need the ability. What's really missing is the domain expertise of what your company does and the decision trees that are going off in your best storytellers heads mm-hmm. have to be a core component of that output, which doesn't, tend to be like out marketing great at scaling things. Sometimes what comes out does feel like bullet points for everyone, as opposed to something written for say Andy. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is in between the two. It's sort of which team is most likely to be able to have that muscle and adapt to that new mental model tends to be more um, effective to start from what works granularly and span, expand up versus frankly, the problem that's exists in outbound in general, which is, most outbound starts with a template right? and then putting it into a sequence. And then at the very last step, we put people in it. And then maybe we do something to each person right before it goes out. We put in that, Andy, you went to Stanford, go Cardinal, right? <laughs> oh, you've been researching me. Yes. Um, <laughs> or worse, you get 50, go Cardinals. <laughs> yeah. Um, with a picture of the bird on it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so then... We could spend all day talking about this, but I want to move, I want to move on because it's next thing you you guys work with, which I think is really interesting, this concept of visual prospecting. So, so tell us what that is. Yeah, so we think of visual prospecting as an extension of content generation for outbound. Right? If you look at most people's playbooks, they're only thinking about plain text copy to power their playbook. So maybe they have mm-hmm. 10, 20, 100 templates that are all different variations of black and white text trying to tell a story. Right. And I think you know, we both objectively know and from research that people process information and visuals a whole lot faster. I think mm-hmm. our business reviews it 60,000 times faster in a, in a picture. So the question is, 
how do we tell stories to prospects to help them understand what might be a complex technology really easily? And often that's going to be a visual. And we're not talking about visuals like HTML from Marketo and sort of high quality marketing graphics. But what would the best AE do if they had 45 minutes in front of PowerPoint or what would a time strap designer do? You, know, you don't want the, the fidelity to be too high. It kind of breaks the trust sure. of like, I've sure. created this. Video. But often what we're helping to do is expand people's outbound playbooks to include both plain text copy and visual content. So this could be a workflow diagram. It could be a side-by-side of your world today versus your world in the future. It could be things like logos, charts, names, pictures. I mean, there's lots of different ways to incorporate all these elements, flatten them, publish them to the cloud, and have them show up in line mm-hmm. in email. And so, you know, what we find is most companies are already doing this today. But again, they're doing it one at a time. So the best AE has a sales motion that they run to help explain their product to a buyer mid-cycle. It's worth that effort. Mm-hmm. Our question to ourselves is, how do we come up with 5, 10, a dozen concepts that can be plugged into the playbook and powered at scale, right? So there's all these APIs and services out there to go and capture logos, to go and capture different pieces of information and incorporate. So same process, collecting and processing all this information to power content. It's just a different type of content. And you know the results speak for themselves. I think some of our customers, uh, we're going to publish a blog post on this soon, have found up to 3x the opportunity rate, right? And this is very high statistical significance, you know, thousands of prospects. Right. Uh, A-B test where, you know, they're getting 3x the opportunity rate without actually affecting the reply and the open rates that much, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously not the open because you can't see the visual. But the point is, is that it's, it's sort of like you're losing 10 pounds of fat, gaining 10 pounds of muscle, right? It's, it reduces a lot of the negative replies. And sometimes you'll see people reply with literally, wow, this is super impressive. Thanks for taking the time to do this. And that's where you really build trust with prospects and the sort of reciprocity principle Mm-hmm. kicks in. I've just done custom work for you to help you understand what we do. It's very powerful. Interesting. So it sounds like based on your description that this is something that you know companies need to be doing, whether it's SDR, outreach, or as you said, more middle of funnel AE activities as well. Yeah. And, and we found it's you can often take from what's happening, you can run it mid-funnel, right? Take the natural inertia of what's happening when an AE has done the calculus to say it's worth spending calories to create this, right? I've got a deal, it's at a certain stage. I think being able to help them communicate internally will help it push to the next phase. Mm-hmm. But if we can reduce the calories that it takes to produce the essence of what's happening in that customization, then we can pull it forward and get some of the similar effect way earlier in the cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, there's mm-hmm. two traps we've found. One is what been alluded to with, if you go too far with design, it sort of breaks this narrative right. a little right. bit like, you know, I'm showing up at your house and it's like, this is too much. Like, why are you doing this? Right. Um, the other trap is going too low, like doing too basic or too like, Andy, I got you a coffee and I put your name on a Starbucks coffee mug, right? Like it quickly devolves into a, um, just being novel for novelty's sake. And then right. we're back to, you went to college <laughs> at the same place. So yeah, the difference between all right, gifting somebody a Starbucks gift card and actually providing them something of, of value. Right. Using the principles that say synthesize what's happening when your best AE, your CEO, your best storyteller is communicating something really crisply to an individual or an organization 
and pulling that forward into what happens in that in that visual. Mm-hmm. So there's still issue of of the fact that AE has to be able to use that effectively, though, right? Because you are sending something, but at some point after that sent, there's going to be a conversation. Correct. Uh, that's they have right. the skills to know how to speak to it, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's right. And what we found, I mean, I think going back to this concept of AE prospecting, I think it's often a false choice. You know, we, we're going to just have SDRs prospect, or you know, your outbound team prospect, and or RAEs prospect, and we don't worry about SDR. It, you don't have to have both. What we've found is if you create a centralized function with a playbook backlog that scales, mm-hmm. and you make a lot of these assets self-service. They should be used almost like you're sort of pulling from a tool belt and saying, here's you know, an asset that I can use in this particular situation. And anyone can use those. People in marketing can use them, events, you know, AEs, you know, CEOs. Well, but this is this gets back to the point we talked about earlier is if you have these types of assets, then doing something like uh, what do you want to call it, social selling or digital selling, but looking at you know social proximity and other factors, if you are an AE, then they really become pretty valuable tools for them to reach out with. Absolutely. And what, you know, one of the things that we try to do is make these assets self-service for anyone in the org. So often we're building these into our toolkit and allowing AEs to go and dynamically or you know, arbitrarily grab a number of domains, click a button, and then they don't worry about how it all happens. But on the back end, it's going out doing the analysis in real time and producing the content on a domain by domain or a person by person mm-hmm. basis. So you don't sort of have to make this decision around like, well, what campaign is this for? Who's using it? It's no, we've set up the infrastructure to produce dynamic, relevant assets or content for anyone in the org to use. And that is when you can start to get to a place where it's very scalable. So, you know, again, often taking two steps back and figuring out how do we solve this. Well, maybe not once and for all, but for the coming quarter or half year, sure. what does our playbook look like and how do we deploy it to the whole org? Right. So question then would be for people listening to this show is, I've only got you know three people on my sales team. How do I possibly do something like this? Yeah, so the, the first thing is, Yes, we are proponents of using technology and code to automate a lot of these things that happen. But the first thing is just looking at where are those best behaviors happening today? And what are the stories that happen and how those adapt and pulling it forward in any way you can. It's, it's primarily first about getting that mental model. It's kind of like um, if you look at the progression of a sales rep mm-hmm. and as they're learning and developing, it's like they start up just saying what the thing is. What do you do? And they just list, list off the features or an XYZ technology company composed of these three mm-hmm. top functionalities, right? So it's up. Don't forget we are founded in a garage. That's right. Mm. We're found our founders <laughs> have this great story. They're telling the founder story that works for founders. Um, and they're just saying it's someone says, what is it? And they say, it's that right. And, and then the next progression is being able to pivot off of, well, if you're the type of company that X, Y, and Z, then, then we are this right. And adapting to whether it's the nature of their business or the persona you're talking to. It's like, if you are this, then what we are is that, right? Mm-hmm. And then the, the next evolution of a salesperson is they're taking in a bunch of thises, right? So it could be the persona, it could be the type of company, sure. it could be, I've asked you a couple of discovery questions and I understand the culture of the organization and the big initiatives for the CEO. And then all of those come in, come together to say something that's unique to who you're talking to, but largely is composed of a central internal decision tree. And so salespeople do that. 
And years ago, when information was harder to get to, you could have mm-hmm. a lot more that-based salespeople, mm-hmm. and you could get away with not having many of those taking a lot of this, like going from many this to that right, to right, those people. Right. And we all know the world today is that they have to be better, right? Like we have Challenger that says, here's the curve specifically to the big change outside of your worlds, very this than that. Um, and we're trying to evolve people up to taking many this is to that. We think the same thing has to happen in outbound. Outbound is very much still sitting in a that world. It's just popping in your name, popping right. in your company name, popping it in your industry. And we see that same evolution happening for outbound. So the first thing is, look at that evolution of what happens with a salesperson and say, where are we on that curve in what we're doing from prospecting and then starting to mine what you're learning from your best salespeople and pull it forward. And Andy, I'll, I'll add that, you know, when you say, give this example of a, a theoretical company with three sales reps, you know, we, we love Charlie Munger and some of the wisdom he has mm-hmm. around sort of inverting problems and looking at them backwards. One of the questions I would ask is if you have a three person team is scale more or less important than the team that has a 20 person sales work, right? So if you only have a couple of sales reps, maybe it's worth thinking about instead of hiring that next SDR or the next two, maybe you hire someone who can centrally think about scaling outbound in a really thoughtful way before you actually end up adding a bunch of people. And what we've found is that there's often a play or you know, sets of plays in your playbook that will be higher relevance because of scale, not in spite of it. And that is a very core mm-hmm. sort of inversion people think about it. often people think oh well once this scales it becomes generic we are really interested in coming up with plays that become more specific and learn from right. scale so right. an example might be you know you go and do an analysis for we have a customer who's a language translation company and they're trying to figure out where is their market demand from a particular place that's not being served by having your content your applications etc in that country right so localization mm-hmm. so you know if you go to a a single company and look at their Alexa traffic to say, where's regional traffic coming from? And then you go to the iTunes store and you say, Oh, they have, you know, 12% of traffic comes from Quebec and France, but they only support English and German. Here's an insight. Well, is that a lot of languages to support? Is it a little, what, what is it? We don't know because we don't have enough data. Right. But if you go and the app store for the top 10,000 domains and find out which languages they're in and how many, and then you go pull all the Alexa traffic and do the gymnastics to figure out what's the gap analysis and where does market opportunity exist? Well, maybe 12% isn't a lot, but you don't know that unless you've gone and done the analysis across a huge number of companies. So right. Kyle and I have this concept of sort of smart plays or, or self-learning plays where the more that you run them, the more that they're tuned. And so, oh, this messaging or this snippet's not working with this persona, let's swap it out. So again, relevance from scale, not in spite of it, is sort of the core place to start. And that might mean building it from the very beginning before you even hire your first sales rep. Yeah. Well, I think you made the point. It's a trade-off of costs that you spend at the beginning. That's correct. Maybe, maybe the right decision to make. So um, a question I was going to ask, because this is a topic we've, we've talked about before too, is because is, part of the reason I'm fascinated by what you guys are doing is, is it's so focused and it's so, uh, for me, meaningful, meaningful, results-oriented in a meaningful way. Meaning that for me, it, it plays into the rest of the cycle. Is is you know I have this concern that which I've voiced to you guys. I'd be interested in your opinion. Is that you know it seems like there's some obsession about prospecting in the sales world in general, like a, a disproportionate amount of of resources and brain power or brain waves going into think about top of funnel, and yet 
yeah, I spent a lot of time talking to lead sales leaders and salespeople and and you know, very little focus on winning. <laughs> and and it really <laughs> and it really sort of concerns me. It's like, okay, great. You know, we've got top of funnel, we've got these obsessions with pipeline coverage ratios, and which you know, people are always surprised that your pipeline coverage ratio results in a win rate that's the reciprocal of your coverage ratio. Um mm-hmm. it's like Yet we're people are still piling onto that behavior. I was talking to I spoke at a conference a couple weeks ago and, and was bringing this out about uh, my concern as keynoting and and afterwards somebody grabs me and says, "Well, yeah, you interesting. You brought that up about because I was saying, you know, aren't you better off starting off with what your desired win rate is and looking at how you scale from that as opposed to the way we're doing it today?" And um, he was saying, yeah, we're just getting ready to go from 5 to 7x pipeline coverage requirement. <laughs> and it's like, well, why? And he thought he was right. going to scale with that. And I said, no, I, I, I suspect you may find the opposite thing happening when you do that. <laughs> so, I yeah. mean, ha- have we gone too far the other direction? I mean, it's just like, it almost seems yeah. like a little, little mindless at this point. But but Andy, I have so many video views on LinkedIn talking about prospecting. You know? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'll let Kyle geeks out on this. I'll let Kyle drive here. Yeah, I mean, it feels like there's a number of factors that feed into why it w- why would this be a logical place to increase focus over time, right? Like the one is you can just recycle tactics, right? There's ton of tons of people saying here's a one two three of the latest template or the latest thing that I tried. So it's easy to grab those. It feels like. There's a lot of silver bullets to be chased mm-hmm. in prospecting. Um, it's one of the most actionable things that you can quote unquote fix and make a vanity number go up, right? Like you start to increase on prospecting and activity numbers go way up. If you start to fix discovery, um, it's like, I'm sure you see this, like when you start to um, develop people on certain new skill sets, it's like the changing the golf grip effect where it's worse yeah. for a little bit. So mm-hmm. We fixed it and now everything's worse for a couple months, right? So you repeat that pattern a few times. Like I like the one where I walk in next month and the chart's going up instead of going down. We'll just flip, um, flip it over. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we need detachable screens. Um, well, I, there's just, but it seems to me like part of it's really driven by the fact that, that when we look at the technologies that have come into sales over the last five years or so is they're focused on that because that's one of the areas that's most separable, right? Because mm-hmm. there's, it's not like it really depends on the interaction with the customer other than that conversion to a meeting for the AE. Otherwise, as you to your point, it's just, I got a number. Uh, but we don't have those tools for middle of the funnel for discovery and so on and so forth. I mean, very few comparatively mm-hmm. that it seems like that sort of has tipped the balance. Oh yeah, because we, can do this we are as opposed to saying Correct. just because we can doesn't mean we should it's that, that disconnect that. of because we split outbound as a separate thing then we created a new set of feedback loops and then we could put tools that accelerate those feedback loops but they're totally disconnected from what happens downstream and it's sort of created like we see this a bit of tying back to the the silver bullet changing there's right. so much out there that it feels like when the when it doesn't hit, there's another silver bullet to change. And like we forgot that sales is hard. And so even the things that we propose, they're not easy. No. They, we would say they're much better leveraged and much better quality. And, and they connect through to the sales, the full sales process, and even into what happens after they after they become a customer. 
but you have this just silver bullet chasing loop because one, you have the feedback loop stuck and two, there's always the next, the next tool to try or the next trick to try. Yeah. Well, I've had conversations. I can't remember if I told Ben this once before is a conversation with CRO of more than one CRO of big SaaS companies and not picking on SaaS companies just happen to be people I'm talking to, but you know, I asked what their growth plans were, how they're going to scale. It was all about, well, you know, we've got this finely tuned engine at the top of the funnel and, you know, we're going to invest there and generate a lot more activity, put higher bunch of SDRs and hand off the ease. And, and I'm like, well, all right, your close rate, I'm going to guess it's 20, 20%, you know, sort of silence. And then it's like, all right, so do you ever think about increasing that to 21% or 22%, you know, it'd be cheaper and faster to grow. And it's, it's not that they thought I was crazy suggesting it. It's just that, but it's tell by the look in their eyes, it just wasn't part of their plan. No. And, and it, it seems like that's a mindset that needs to change because we're normalizing. I feel like in, in today's way we've got things set up for many companies is we're normalizing bad sales behavior. Yeah. Totally. No, it's often it's, it's bad results fast, right? When you start mm-hmm. to think of this obsession over prospecting, I think chorus and some of the other players in the space that are starting to do call analysis, there's a lot of interesting data that's mm-hmm. being generated mid cycle that, that really wasn't before. And, and to Kyle's point, there's just so much raw data out there for prospecting. It's the easiest place to think that you can start to scale, right? Most sales orgs, who even if you have a successful AE team, a lot of that's locked in their head and locked in a conference room. So if, you know, they're getting in front of a whiteboard mm-hmm. and you know, trying to trying to sort of create a repeatable thing, but that still happens one at a time. One of the concepts that Kyle and I talk about is how do you use the same concepts around scaling dynamic content or dynamic insights and you know deploy them later in the sales cycle. So one one concept like that is what we call interactive whiteboarding, which mm-hmm. is, I think we've talked about this in the past, you know, often people are, if they're a really gifted salesperson or often the CEO product person is spending time laying out their view of the world on a whiteboard. And what we've found is it's possible in a lot of organizations, especially with very complex technical products, to create a repeatable process for that whiteboarding session. And when we say interactive discovery, it's using the canvas of the whiteboard to create a template for discovery. So often, if mm-hmm. you know, if we're in the room at our last startup, we're starting off with, here's how we see the world and spending 5, 10, 15 minutes drawing it out. And the prospect doesn't necessarily know this going in, but it's sort of this inter- immersive experience right. where now what I've drawn on the board becomes a template for discovery. And I'm filling in blank space on which people are here, which systems mm-hmm. are here, what's the performance of this particular lever or this dial. And then at the end, they think that they're still in a pitch, but now they've just laid out the plan, right? So one mm-hmm. time, Kyle and I actually were at a very large fitness retailer uh, in Vancouver. Um, and by the time we got done with the whiteboarding session, the person just stuck one of those little labels that says, do not erase. Mm-hmm. And like, this is our plan. It's staying on the whiteboard, right? Like in their project room, we now had a mutual plan to sell yep. to them that we drew together. And, yep. and I think you made this point before, Andy, like they did half of it. We handed them the pen yep. and they drew the plan for us. Right? right. And so what's really interesting about this interactive whiteboarding can now scale because of tools like Google's Jamboard. So digitizing that same experience and creating a repeatable template mm-hmm. for that interactive discovery, you can do it on an iPad in a zoom meeting. 
Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you really, again, take two steps back and invest in the infrastructure to make it repeatable, a lot of these same insights that are being used for outbound can power discovery, can power, you know, different demo concepts and other mid-cycle selling. Yeah, well, I love that example because for me, what you're really doing there is telling their story. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's a way of visioning, I guess, as other people call it. But I mean, for me, that's like the only story you really need to be able to tell is their story of how they fit into that template that you're laying for them, laying out for them, right? That they were helping to create. So they're putting themselves into the picture and they see it. Um, yeah, you accomplish several steps in one when you do that. I think that's really powerful. Yeah, no, we, we do too. Um, one, one question I have, I guess, one of the things that we really pride ourselves on, Andy, is like the fact that we, we've been in front of customers for a long time. We're trying to sort of pull forward a lot of these insights. And one of the things you alluded to earlier is this sort of noise in social from mm. sort of the in quotes expert community. <laughs> What's your sense for you know, the quality of the community that we all live in now? And does it ever, uh, and I know I'm sort of changing tracks here, but does it ever annoy you that for a lot of the folks out there projecting all this advice, if you go to their LinkedIn profile, they've actually never sold mm. an enterprise complex deal. And they're sort of, sort of skipping that step, right? Like, does that bother you as, as someone who's spent a lot of time doing it right? Um. Yeah. Uh, yes, it does. Uh, without naming names, but but yeah, I mean, I, I I think people have made a career of being an expert as opposed to making a career of being in sales. Then saying, how can I help people with my expertise? Yeah, I think there's some some danger in that because until you've really gone out and done it, you know, until you've had to go out and close. You guys sold complex enterprise stuff. I sold complex enterprise stuff around the world. Um, yeah, until you've had to do it, there's there's no way to really gain that those insights without having to be face to face with a customer and making it happen. And so, yeah, it's I mean it's it's the thing of the internet, right? Everybody's got a megaphone, and yeah. and so how do you help people discern you know who the good people are to follow as opposed to and who they can get benefit from as opposed to those who aren't? It's not real easy, right? Because there is so much out there. Um, yeah, I think that there are people, I sort of tell people, start with <laughs> eliminating the people who are telling you there's only one way to do things. Mm-hmm. And and if you sort of use that as your first filter, you know, anybody that says, hey, there's one truth out there about sales or there's, you know, this is the only way to do it or, you know, 10x whatever, then, yeah, yeah your antenna should go up because, you know, anything that seems to be too good to be true, it oftentimes is, as we know. But the fact is, I think sales, oh, it's interesting because I love what you guys are talking about. But at the end of the day, there's still, you're going to have a conversation with somebody. It's still you talking to someone else, whether it's virtually like this or in person. Yeah, you may be using a, a template, you may be using something to help you. But, you know, you as a person still have an impact on that that other individual. And you you can't templatize you know, the way one of 7 billion people in the world interacts with another one of 7 billion people in the world, that's going to be unique in that instance. And so, that's why I really focus and and telling people is, look, you got to, yeah, I want you to follow me. I want you to learn from me. I want you to learn from from Ben and Kyle. But then, how do you become the best version of yourself? And that's going to be coming from various sources because there are certain things that will resonate with you in certain ways and others won't. And that's fine. I mean, I'm 
I'm a, a sum total of you know hundreds and thousands of of books and articles and podcasts and everything else that I've I've read and listened to and and watched in my life and my career or mentors I've listened to. Yeah, there's just no yeah. one no one spot, but I you know, I've got a BS filter that's pretty wide. Um, <laughs> and and maybe I'm more cynical than some people. But it's healthy. But I th- I think it is a little bit healthy because I think that yeah, you know, when you spend time with people that that at the end of the day don't have value for you is is yeah, you know, that's time you never recover. And yeah, I think for people that are really ambitious in sales is it's a it's a great career because you can learn a lot quickly. You can grow quickly. You can take on a, lots of responsibility quickly. Um, but the people who do that quickly are those who are just open ears, open eyes, learning, listening everywhere they can. I like that filter that you have on, do they say there's only one thing? It's like a reverse Dunning-Kruger effect. Right. Like the Dunning-Kruger, like I know a little bit, if, if, if you have a little bit of knowledge, you think you're, you're very sure. And then the more you <laughs> learn about something, the more you you realize how big that that knowledge space is. And so you start to have the nuance of here's where it applies and doesn't, and here's where it adapts and doesn't and uh, like that. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm a lot older than you guys. And, and yeah, I mean, I, somebody asked me the other day, it's like, okay, well, how can you, how can you write a daily email about sales? And I said, you know, I'm four year, four decades into my sales career. I've got a list and I'm kidding you not. I can go on Evernote. I've got a list of 900 potential topics to write about. Well, I mean, I just, I read something or I talk to you, somebody like yourself, because you guys have already stimulated a couple ideas and it's, it's like, it goes in the list. It's like, yeah, I'm just, well, share I'm, the wealth, Andy. Can you carve off a, a couple <laughs> dozen for us? Sure. I'll send you a couple dozen, <laughs> but let's know which ones have the Ben and Kyle tag in Evernote. <laughs> right. And it's, but it's, you know, it's that type of thing is as long as you're curious, and uh, and I think this is where, to your point with the Dunning Kruger, is where people begin to fail, is they lose the curiosity, and yeah, that's just a personality type, and that's why there are so few people at the top of the pyramid. Is is yeah, most people sort of get satisfied at a certain level, or and and I think that was maybe easier to do when mm-hmm. I was younger because there were fewer resources, but now. How can you not be excited? Because yeah, every day I can go yeah. online and, and see a world I could never see ten years ago or twenty years ago. I mean, totally. Yeah. yeah. You know, speaking of curiosity, Andy, one of the topics we've talked about in the past, I'd love to get your perspective on is what do you think the latest is on the sort of state of in quotes ABM um, and how this whole conversation is playing out? You know, with operators and with yeah, that enable it, but also with the sales advisory community. Like, what is? How do you define it? And it's a topic that we were hoping to cover with you uh, on the pod. Well, yeah. When I when I first heard about ABM, I was like, okay, well, there's a solution in search of a problem. Um, but I've become less, you know, less that way about it because, you know, it's not like it's it's fundamentally new, right? I mean, it's it's that's how I. When you're selling big accounts, you just don't go out and cold call everybody out of the blue. I mean, one company I was with that we grew to a, quite a large company, you know, I only had 200 prospects in the world. I knew who they all were. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, by necessity, I was doing account-based prospecting even back decades ago. Um, but I think, you know, I think the tools are really useful. 
but I think that what I'm seeing is, and so far, is that a lot of companies are using ABM sort of the way they approach um, using sales engagement tools, which is, I'm just going to say, take sort of the same thing I've been doing and just automate it. Right. And then call it account-based selling or account-based marketing. Right. And yeah, I was just talking to someone that was you know, talking about account-based selling and was really equating that more to you know, sort of, I don't call it classic social selling, but yeah, really closely and tightly knit uh, you know, social strategy. Yeah, I mean, certainly. Yeah, if I had, I'd love to have had those tools when when I was, I mean, think about this. I was, so a lot of my cust- big customers overseas and in the satellite communications business and you know, had no email, no internet, and you know, you had to go come up with a, a plan to break into an account. So these things would have been great to have had yeah. um, if you could restrain yourself and how you use them. You know, if you could be right. more targeted, if you could be authentic. And there are some people that are doing a great job of talking about that. So I don't know if I answered your question, but it's it's to yeah. me it's to me it's like it's evolving so quickly. Mm-hmm. It's one of these things that if we look at it in two years or so, we'll probably have a completely different perspective on it than we do now because. I think people are going to – so I think there's some companies that have learned their lessons with, with Outbound and how they're doing it um, you know, and doing things like you're suggesting with Outbound Ops that we're going to see more of that with account-based selling where it's a little more rationalized as opposed to, hey, let's turn some people loose with these tools and right. fundamentally spam 20 people inside an account as opposed to let's, let's put together a real strategy that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think an adapted version of Goodhart's law, you know, the the economic yeah. economics quote of, you know, when a measure becomes a target, target, it loses, loses all value, value as a measure. Yeah. yeah. So when, yeah. when I sent you a gift, gift basket because I had this specific wine that you like and the chocolate that you like and a gift for your family, like, and then now suddenly we're, you're all getting the same exact thing. It, it loses, it just becomes a novel thing for the first couple of rounds. Yeah. Well, I, actually, you know, I maybe you've heard me talk about this, but I, I invoke Goodhart's law as the reason why we should get rid of quota as a measure. Mm-hmm. Tell us more about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, if if to Goodhart's law, you heard people talk yep. about it. It's British economists came up with this this idea that's been simplified into saying that when a measure becomes a target, it loses all value as a measure. And when you think about quota, it's the perfect exemplification of that. Is mm-hmm. not only have a situation where, according to you know Miller Hyman CSO Insights, we've got what less than fifty percent of sales reps even attain quota, but it doesn't really measure anything useful. I mean, it measures somebody was able to do something, but as people who have studied right. Goodhart's Law have said, is that part of the reason it loses its value as a measure is that people optimize their processes to attain the target. And right. so when you're optimizing your process to achieve a target, it has nothing to do with your potential productivity because you're self-limiting yourself to hit the target. So for yeah. me, as I've been spending more time in the last two decades working with companies on productivity issues, it's like, yeah, it just, it just doesn't make any sense. And when I write about it, I always get people writing back to me, senior people saying, yeah, we'd like to do something different. And because it's, they see it doesn't work. Yeah. 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 I think it's, it's often going to be a judgment on the Biz, biz ops person ability to properly set quotas. <laughs> That's often, you know, what the, well, yeah, but it, so one of the other missing factors when you get into when you think about it is is so quote oftentimes is a, a top down 
setting quotas, a top-down exercise, right? I mean, as much as companies yeah. are saying, oh, yeah, we do bottoms up, they don't. So, well, they will if it aligns with what the top wants, but when it doesn't, <laughs> it's top-down. And, and so let's say a company comes in and says, okay, we're going to raise quotas 10% this year. And so a question I'll ask them is, say, okay, well, interesting. So have you assessed the skill levels of your sellers, and have they increased their skills or competencies by 10% over this past year? Mm-hmm. You know, is there any reason to believe that they're going to perform at a higher level based right. on the level of investment you've made in them to be able to achieve that number? Of course, the answer is always no. Right, right. But, let, but let's go raise quotas 10% anyway. Yeah. And then you start yeah. getting this you know, vicious cycle where it's just self-perpetuating as, as people underperform. So why... Why wouldn't, as a company, why wouldn't you say, well, maybe there's a better way to do this? I advocate using productivity as measures or revenue dollars generated per hour of selling time, which mm-hmm. gives you an individual measure that you can then say, okay, I can compare two people and say, well, why did it take Kyle 20 selling hours to close this million dollar deals where Ben did it in 18? Right. Right. And then I can say, okay, well, now I can see what levers I have to pull that really are meaningful in terms of affecting the outcome. But then also if I can look at what my productivity per person, actual productivity is for person across the board, well, that gives me a sense of what my true capacity is as a sales organization. As opposed to saying it's 10 times, uh, if I have 10 people in my sales team, instead of saying it's 10 times the quota or it's do what most people do as well. I get two people at quota. I get six, they'll be, you know, 80%, 10, five, you know, that's how I scale my team. Right. No, I can look at a productivity number and say, okay, I can say, here's, here's what the optimal productivity is this year. Now, what can I change so that will have an impact on that? And it's not going to be, in my mind, it's not going to be the number of hours you have available to sell. It's how do I make each person more productive for each hour they spend selling? Totally. Yep. Yeah. And I, I, we often see people sort of uh, bringing up, oh, there's, there's another initiative going on in the company that should allow everyone to, to sell more, sort of completely divorced from the reality, right? So mm-hmm. you know, going back to ABM, so, oh, we're rolling out an ABM program now. So <laughs> hey, yeah. you know, everyone should be able to, to do better. And that makes the fundamental assumption that the quality of the plays is good, right? Oh, yeah, well, somebody knows, how to, somebody knows how to qualify. Somebody knows how to do discovery. Someone knows how to do needs analysis. I mean, and these things are still mysteries for many people um so it's yeah so i i'm if i had my way and i have a few people i talk about with this all the time and we're trying to get more people sort of signed on is let's let's get rid of quota let's look at something that's really actually meaningful and that's individual because i think another thing that's really self-destructive in a way that's really unnecessary is is Sales leaders look at people as, you know, hey, you're an A person, you're a B person, you're a C person, and not really, right? I mean, I, we sort of, we've demonized this idea of being good at something, mm. right? If you're not excellent, you're good. Well, good, good by right. definition is bad. <laughs> it's like, well, no, right. good, is that, good is actually good. We want people to be good at what they're doing. And I take a whole team of people who are good because uh, the good people tend to be more consistent, more predictable, more reliable, yeah. um, and I have a chance of upskilling them. Whereas, oftentimes, I'm sure you've seen this, but yeah, the rock stars tend to come and go. Yep. 
And I to find, that point, like this model makes it a little easier to do transfer from company to company. There's a little bit more of a exactly, exactly. Of, I that, hit this arbitrary number. It's this was my production by hour spent, and here's how that broke down, etc. Right, it's a little right. bit easier to to package it up. I think the ultimate goal should be that that everybody has a number. Everybody in sales has a number, and that number, to your point, Kyle, is transferable. And so when you're looking to go find a new opportunity and you're competing, it's the guy who <laughs> rolls in with the Rolex watch and the gold chains and, you know, worked, worked for, yeah, just happened to be working for a company that hit a home run while he was there. And now everybody thinks he's the expert, right? Um, and, and you're competing with that person. It's like, well, yeah, actually, I've got the number here to prove that. And to me, I said, that's sort of the ultimate is that, not to reduce everybody to a number, but why not? Because then it makes it easier to hire and get hired. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've made that that hire on the Rolex in the past. <laughs> yeah, don't don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. All right. So, who's in charge here? Is it me or you? <laughs> it's you. We know that. All right. All right. So, uh, yeah, we've gone well past, but it's been so much fun, and that is not a problem at all. We'll make sure we do this again too. So. Uh, guys, tell folks how they can learn more about uh, Dog Patch Advisors and how they can connect with you guys individually. Yeah, um, go to our website. You know, find us on LinkedIn. Uh, we speak at conferences occasionally. Do things like podcasts, and we produce a decent amount of content with partners and customers on everything as well. So we're super open. We love geeking out on you know what's to come and how to push the profession forward. So reach out to us anytime. Um, we love you know, going really deep with people on especially, you know, new ideas and, you know, ways we can rethink a lot of the problems that we've discussed today. So yeah, we're out there. Uh, come find us and say hi anytime. Yeah. Well, I think people listening today, you get a sense of just, uh, why we enjoy talking to them. So, um, guys, thanks. We'll, we'll do it again. Love Thank to. you, Andy. Thank you this so is much. great. All right. Okay, friends, that was Accelerate for the week. First of all, as always, I want to thank you for taking the time to join me. And I want to thank my guests, Ben Saltzman and Kyle Williams. Join me again next week as my guest will be Dennis Brown. Dennis is the founder of The Linked Academy and host of the Growth Experts podcast. Now, Dennis is one of the true experts on using LinkedIn as a sales tool. And we're going to be getting into some really practical and valuable LinkedIn strategies that you can use and put to use in your strategy right away. Excuse me, put to use in your selling right away. So be sure to join us then. And before you go, don't forget to check out The Sales House. This is the sales performance accelerator for B2B sellers just like you. Visit thesaleshouse.com and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Thanks again for joining me. Until next week, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.